Okay, everyone. Um, let's get started. So, um, let's see. Plan for today is uh, we'll go over the rest of ICA, independent components analysis, and in particular, talk a bit about CDF's cumulative distribution functions, and then um, actually, uh, let's do that later. All right, so plan is uh, we'll go over uh, the rest of ICA, independent components analysis, and we'll talk a bit about CDFs, um, cumulative distribution functions, and then derive the ICA model. And uh, in the second half of today, we'll start on the final of the um, interesting, four major topics of the class, which is reinforcement learning. We'll talk about MDPs or Markov decision processes. So to recap briefly, um, we had, you know, remember the overlapping voices demo. So we said that in the ICA problem, independent components analysis problem, we assume we have sources S, which are um, Rn, if you have N speakers. So for example, if this is speaker one's audio, then at time T, um, S, you know, superscript parentheses T subscript one is the sound emitted by speaker one at time t. Sorry, is that another? That's interesting. All right, let's try to make that go with a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're using sometimes i to index training examples, and so the training examples sweep over time. Um, uh, and sometimes, usually I use i, sometimes I use t, I guess, in the case where um, the, uh, uh, the different examples come from different points in time in your recording. And what your microphones record is xi equals a of si. So just for now, let's say you have two speakers and two microphones, in which case a would be a two by two matrix. Uh, in the homework problem, you have five speakers and five microphones, in which case a will be a five by five matrix. We'll talk later um, about what happens if the number of speakers and microphones is not the same. And the goal is to find the matrix w, uh, which should hopefully be a inverse. Um, so that SI is W times X, recover the original sources. Uh, and we're going to use these W1 up through WN to represent the rows of this matrix W. Yeah. Uh, oh yes, you're right, thank you. Right. Okay, thank you. Okay, so um, last time we had all right, so remember this is a picture of the cocktail party problem. And uh, last time I showed these pictures about, you know, why, why, why is ICA even possible, right? Given two overlapping um, voices, how is it even possible to separate them out? How is there enough information to know, um, uh, you know, what are the two overlapping voices? And so one picture we saw was this one, where if S1 and S2 are uniform between minus one and plus one, then the distribution of data will look like this. If you pass this data through the mixing matrix A, then your observations, now the axes have changed x1 and x2, may look like this. And your job is to find an unmixing matrix W that maps this data back to the square, okay? Now, this 
example is possible because the examples, because the uh, sources S1 and S2 were distributed uniformly between minus one and plus one. Um, it turns out human voices, you know, the recordings per moment in time are not distributed uniform between minus one and plus one. And it turns out that um, uh, if the data was Gaussian, then ICA is actually not possible. Um, here's what I mean. Let's say that, uh, so, so the uniform distribution is a highly non-Gaussian distribution, right? Uniform between minus one and plus one, you know, this is not Gaussian, and that, that makes ICA possible. Um, what if S1 and S2 came from Gaussian densities, right? Um, if that were the case, then this distribution, S1 and S2, would be rotationally symmetric, and so um, there'd be a rotational ambiguity, right? Any axis could be S1 and S2. You can't map, you know, this type of parallelogram back to the square, right? So, so you can't sort of, I think in this parallelogram, um, you can sort of read off, you know, that maybe one axis should look like that. Sorry, I'm drawing with a mouse, not drawing very well. Well, second axis should maybe look like that, right? And by, by inverting that, you can get the data back to the square. But in the case of if the data look like this, then you actually don't know um, because maybe this should be S1 and that should be S2, right? But so there's this rotational ambiguity because the Gaussian distribution is um, rotationally symmetric. If S1 and S2 are standard Gaussians, then, then, then this distribution is rotationally symmetric and you don't have enough information to recover the directions that correspond to the original sources, okay? So it turns out that um, there is some ambiguity in the output of ICA. In particular, last time we talked about uh, two sources of ambiguity. Um, you don't know which is speaker one and which is speaker two, right? You don't know which one to number speaker one and which one to number speaker two. And you might take this data and flip it horizontally, uh, reflect this, you know, on, on the S1 goes to negative S1, or reflect this uh, on a vertical axis. We don't know if it's positive S2 or negative S2. And in the case of this example, where S1 and S2 are uniform minus one plus one, those are the only sources of ambiguity. Um, but if the data was Gaussian, there'd be additional rotational ambiguity, which, makes it which actually makes it impossible to separate out the sources, okay? So it turns out that, um, So it turns out that the Gaussian density is the only distribution um, that is rotationally symmetric. Uh, if, if, if S1 and S2 are independent and if the distribution is rotationally symmetric, meaning that the distribution has sort of circular contours, uh, then, it, then, it, then it must be a Gaussian density. And so there is a theorem, uh, which I'll just state informally, that ICA is possible only if your data is non-Gaussian, right? But, but so long as your data is non-Gaussian, then it is possible to recover the independent sources, okay? I'm just stating that informally. Um, so, let's see. So what I'd like to do is um, develop the ICA algorithm, assuming that the data is non-Gaussian. Now, um, in order to uh, develop the ICA model, we need to figure out what is the density of S, right? And I'm gonna use P subscript S 
you know, of, uh, the, the, uh, of, of the random variable S to represent the um, density of S. Um, an equivalent way to represent the probability or the density of continuous random variables is virus CDF, uh, which stands for cumulative uh, distribution functions. And um, the cumulative distribution function of a, a random variable f of s in probability is defined as the chance that the random variable is less than that value. So I guess um, notation has been inconsistent, sorry, but this is capital S I'm using to denote the random variable, and this is some constant, right? And uh, is that same constant, is that lowercase s, okay? Um, and so, for example, if this is the PDF of a random variable S, maybe of a Gaussian, right? The CDF is a function that um, increases from zero to one, where um, the height of a CDF at a certain point is the probability, so if you take the same point, right? So the height of a CDF at a certain point, lowercase s, is the probability that a random variable takes on a value equal to this value or lower, which means that the height of this function is equal to um, you know, the probability mass, the area under the curve of your PDF um, over to the left of that point, okay? So that's the, I don't know, some, sometimes, this, some probability in statistics courses teach this concept and some don't, I guess, but there's, so, there's a mapping between the PDFs and the CDFs of a function, uh, of, a, of a continuous random variable. Um, and the relation between the PDF and the CDF is that the density is equal to the first derivative, right, uh, f prime. So if you take the derivative of the um, CDF, then you should recover the PDF, okay? But so I think um, in order to specify, you know, some random variable, we could either specify the PDF, right, the probability density function, or you could specify the CDF, which is just, you no, know, let's tell me what's the chance of the random variable taking on any value less than any particular value s. And by taking the derivative of this, you can always recover the PDF. And by integrating this, you can always go to the CDF, okay? And so um, what we're going to do in um, ICA is instead of specifying a PDF for how speakers' voices sound, we're instead gonna specify a CDF. And uh, we'll have to choose a CDF that is not the Gaussian density CDF because we have to assume that the data is non-Gaussian. And, uh, um, uh, and the CDF, you know, is a function that always goes from, right, zero to one, okay? So, um, All right, so we'll specify so in a little bit, we'll specify some CDF for the density of the sources of what human voices sound like, let's say. And if you 
differentiate this, uh, you will get the PDF of the density of S, right? Which is equal to that. Now, um, we're going to derive a maximum likelihood estimation algorithm in a minute, but our model is that x is equal to as, um, which is equal to, I guess, w inverse of s, and s is equal to wx, right? So that, that's, that's the model. And in order to derive a maximum likelihood estimate for the parameters, um, when you have, so this is going to be the density of x right. so this is a relationship between um, uh, this is a relationship between x and s x is equal to as equals w inverse s and s equal to wx right so this is the model and what I'd like to do is let's say you know what's the density of s um, what is the density of x if x is computed as the matrix A times S, right? So one step that's tempting to take is to just say, well, S is equal to W times x, so the probability of x is just equal to the probability of S taking on the certain value, right? So, so I mean, this is S, right? And so, the probability of seeing a certain value of x is equal to the probability of s taking on that corresponding value. Because assuming w is an inversible matrix as a bijection, there's one-to-one -one mapping between x and s. So to find the probability of x, just find the probability of s and compute the corresponding probability. Um, it turns out this is, this is incorrect. And this works for probability mass functions for discrete probability distributions uh, that take on discrete values. But this is actually incorrect for continuous probability densities. So let me, let me um, uh, show an illustration and we'll go back to derive what is a correct way of computing the density of x. Oh, and we'll want a density of x because um, when you get the training set, you only get to observe x. And so for uh, finding a maximum likelihood estimate of parameters, you need to know um, what's the density of x. You can you know, choose the parameters, choose the parameters w to maximize the likelihood. So that's where we want to compute the density of x. But um, let's, let's use a simple example. Let's say the density of s is an indicator s is between 0 and 1. Okay? So this is um, s is distributed uniform from 0 to 1. Um, and let's say x is equal to 2 times s. Okay? So in our notation, a is equal to 2, w is equal to 1 half. Uh, this is a n equals 1, one-dimensional example. So um, this is the density of s, right? Uniform distribution from 0 to 1. And if x is equal to 2 times s, then this seems like x should be equal, x is distributed uniformly from 0 to 2. Because right? if s is uniform from 0 to 1, you multiply by 2, x is distributed uniformly from 0 to 2. And so the density for x is equal to this, 1, 2, right? and it's now half as tall because uh, probability density functions need to integrate to 1.
So this is a uniform from zero to two probability density function. And so the correct formula um, is P of x, x equals one half times indicator zero less than equal to x less than equal to two. Um, okay, and uh, more generally, the correct formula for this is actually this times, um, this is the determinant of the matrix W. Uh, and in the case of a row number, the determinant of a row number is just its absolute value, which is why um, we have the density of X equals one half, you know, that's the absolute value of the determinant of W um, times, times, well, times indicator whether two times S is within zero, zero to one. So I guess this oh, this is indicator zero less than equal to one half x less than equal to one right, since that's s okay so this is an illustration showing why this is the right way with the determinant of w multiplied in here as the as a way to compute the density of x um, and I don't know for the, for those of you familiar with um, determinants and oh, determinants is a function you can call you know in NumPy to compute. Um, uh, but also uh, the, the intuition of determinism measures how much it stretches out a um, local warping. Uh, and so you need to uh, uh, sort of divide by the determinant of A or multiply by the determinant of W um, in order to make sure the distribution still normalizes to one, right? So that's where that comes from. So um, we're nearly done. Just one more decision and then we can derive a maximum likelihood estimation, uh, de derive a maximum likelihood estimate of this, of the parameters. The last thing we need to do is um, choose the density of what your know, speaker's voices sound like. And as I said just now, um, what we are going to do is uh, choose a non-Gaussian distribution, right? And so, well, f of s is equal to the chance of this person's voice, right? Random variable s being less than a certain value. And we need a smooth function that goes between, you know, zero and one, um, right? We need a smooth function that has vaguely that shape. And so, well, what functions do we know that vaguely that shape, right? Let's pick the sigmoid function. Um, and it turns out this will, this will work okay. There are many choices that actually work fine. Um, it turns out that if you choose the sigmoid function to be the CDF, then if you look at the PDF this induces, if you take the derivative of this, right? So take P of X equals the derivative of the CDF. Um, it turns out that if this is the Gaussian, then the PDF that this choice induces is uh, something with fatter tails, right? Um, by which I mean that it goes to zero, you know, 
So Gaussian density goes to zero very quickly, right? It's like e to the negative x squared, right? So the Gaussian is a square in the exponent of the density. And it turns out that this particular density uh, taken by compute derivative of sigma, it goes to zero more slowly. And this captures human voice and many natural phenomena better than the Gaussian density because there are a larger number of extreme outliers that are more than one or two standard deviations away. Um, but there are actually multiple distributions that work. You, if you use a double, double exponential distribution, so this is an exponential distribution, exponential density, if you take a symmetric or two-sided exponential density for P of S, it will also work quite well for ICA. But I think um, early history of ICA, you know, researchers, I think it was, um, might have been Terry Sanowski uh, down at the Salk Institute, just needed a function with these properties and you pick the sigmoid and plug it in and it works just fine and it's been a good enough default that um, it's, still, it's still widely used, right? But, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but if you use this um, double-sided exponential, uh, sometimes I'll call the Laplacian distribution, this, this works fine as well as a choice of uh, P of S. So, the final step. Um, the density of S is equal to right, the product of the, uh, uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, so product from i equals one through your n sources of the probability of each of the speakers emitting that sound, right? Uh, because the n speakers are speaking independently, right? Yeah. Wait, sorry, say that again. Oh, yes, you're right. Sorry about that. Yes, this should have been. Sorry, yes, this should have been a P of S. Yeah, thank you. Right, go from a CDF to a PDF by taking the yeah. Thank you. All right, cool. So um, uh, S is the vector of all you know, two speakers or all five speakers' voices at one moment in time. So the density of S, right, S is an Rn, is the product of the individual speakers' probabilities. And um, this is the key assumption of ICA, that, you know, your two speakers or your five speakers are having independent conversations. And so at every moment in time, they choose independently of each other what sound to emit. Right? Um, and so using the formulas we worked on just now, the density of x is equal to, um, well, is really the density of uh, wx times the determinant of w. Right. Uh, so, and this is equal to
Um, oh, in this notation, uh, wi transpose x, this is, um, right, because wi is the ith row of the matrix w. And so, um, you know, I guess sj S is equal to um, wj transpose x, right? Take, take a corresponding row and multiply it by x to get a corresponding source. Actually, sorry, I think that's right, yeah. Let me use j there to make this clearer. And so um, this writes out, so this shows what is the density of x um, expressed as a function of um, P of s, which we've assumed, which we've fixed as a CDF of the sigmoid, as a, uh, as a derivative of the sigmoid, and as a function of the parameter w, right? So this is a model that, given a setting of the parameter w, which is a square matrix, um, allows us to write down what's the density of x. So the final step is um, we could use maximum likelihood estimation to estimate the parameters w. Um, so the log likelihood of w is equal to sum over the training examples of log of yeah. times the determinant w, right? And um, you can use stochastic gradient ascent. Right. Take the derivative of w with respect to the log likelihood. Um, and it turns out, this is derived in the lecture notes. I'll just write it out here. Turns out that um, if you use this formula, don't don't worry about the formula for the derivative. The full derivation is given in lecture notes. But it turns out that um, if you use the derivative of the log likelihood with respect to parameter matrix W, and use stochastic gradient ascent to maximize the log likelihood, uh, run this for a while, then you can get um, ICA to find a pretty good matrix W um, for unmixing the sources. So just to recap the whole algorithm, right? You would have a training set of um, x1 up through xm, where each of your training examples is the um, uh, microphone recordings at one moment in time. And so the time goes from 1 through m. What you do is initialize the matrix w, say, randomly, and use gradient ascent with this formula for the derivative in order to maximize the log likelihood of the data. And after gradient ascent converges, you then have a matrix W, and you can then recover the sources as S equals W of X, and then 
now that you have the sources, you can take, um, say, S11 through S1M and play that through your, um, your laptop speaker in order to see what source one sounds like. Right? And so that's how you would take you know, overlapping voices and try to unmix them. Okay? Oh, yeah? Uh, why is choice of safe point not rotation symmetric? Uh, uh, boy, I don't know how to visualize that. Uh, try plotting it in um, NumPy, matplotlib, I guess. If you plot the contours of the... De so it turns out that uh, if this is S1 and S2, what you do not want is a de density whose contours look like that. Um, haven't done this for a while. I believe if you take this distribution, the contours will look like that. It's been a while since I looked at this, but I think it'll look like that. So this is not rotation symmetric. Do you remember, Alan? Oh, this Laplace. Yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, yes, Laplace definitely looked like that. I think sigmoid looks a bit like that, too. Yeah, a little like that. You plot it and see if I'm right. Or post on Piazza if one of you plots it, you can, you can see it. I haven't done that for a long time. Yeah, uh, at the back. Oh, um, uh, why don't you interpret the determinant log? Uh, the, 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 actually, yes, the log should be like this, I think. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, g is a sigmoid function. Yes, so g of z. Yeah, thank you. More question? Sure, what's the, yeah, um, what's the closest nonlinear extension of this? Um, I don't, we don't have a great answer to that right now, frankly. Um, uh, so a bunch of people, including, you know, my former students and me, have done research to try to extend this to nonlinear versions, and there's some stuff that kind of works, but I don't think there's like a, tried and true algorithm that I'm ready to say this is the right way to do it. Um, uh, yeah, actually maybe, yeah. actually I could, I could say a little bit more about that if you're interested. Well, yeah, uh, actually yeah, let, me, let me try to. So, so for several, several years ago, and, and still kind of ongoing, there's been research, um, some done by my collaborators and me, some done by others on trying to build nonlinear versions of ICA. And so some of you might have seen this slightly infamous um, Google Cat result. 
right? Uh, so this one was leading the Google Brain project, one of the first projects we did, just a few years ago now, where um, we trained a neural network uh, uh, on, um, was it uh, many, many hours of YouTube videos? Uh, and eventually it learned to detect cats because apparently there are a lot of cats in YouTube videos. Um, uh, and so it turns out that the algorithm we used was a um, was sparse coding, which is actually very closely related to ICA. Um, and so this rough algorithm was attempting to build a nonlinear version of ICA where you train one version, one, train, train one layer of sparse coding, let's say, to extract low-level features and then recursively apply this on top to learn not just edge detectors but object part detectors and then eventually, you know, the somewhat infamous, um, uh, the somewhat infamous Google Cat. Um, but I think that this is actually still ongoing research. Um, I think the most interesting research, uh, some of the most interesting research has been on hierarchical versions of sparse coding. Sparse coding is a different algorithm that turns out to be very closely related to ICA, and, and you could show that they're optimizing for very similar things. So, so if I say sparse coding is very similar to ICA, uh, but there are hierarchical versions of this to try to turn this into a multi-layered neural network. And it kind of works. We're able to show we can learn interesting features. But what happened was uh, supervised learning then really took off, and the whole world shifted a lot of its attention to supervised learning and building deep supervised learning neural networks. And so the hierarchical sparse coding, running ICA over and over to learn nonlinear versions, there's, there's probably less uh, attention from research on, the, on that topic than it, than it really deserves. So may, maybe you, maybe someone in the class could go back and do more research on that. I, I still think it's a promising area. All right. Um, so let me wrap up with uh, some ICA examples. Um, so this is actually a former TA from the class, um, Katie Chang. Um, and so it turns out that uh, uh, ICA is routinely used to clean up EEG data today. So what's an EEG, right? Um, place many electrodes on your scalp uh, to measure little electrical recordings uh, on the surface of your scalp. So you know, what, what does the human brain do, right? Human brain, your neurons in your brain right now uh, fire, generate little pulses of electricity. And if you put, place an electrode on your scalp, you can get a very weak measurement of the, um, of the voltage of the electrical activity in a, you know, at a certain point in your scalp. So the analogy to, um, Oh, excuse me. Oh, what's wrong? All right. So the analogy to the cocktail party problem, the um, overlapping speaker's voices, is that you know your your brain does a lot of things at the same time, right? Your brain helps regulate your heartbeat. Um, a part of your brain does that. Another part of your brain, you know, makes your eyes blink every now and then. Another part of your brain, part of your brain is also responsible for making sure that you breathe. Uh, and then part of your brain is responsible for thinking about machine learning and stuff like that, right? So, so your brain actually handles many different tasks at the same time. And as your brain, um, sorry, oh, I'm not sure what's wrong with this. Okay. And as your brain um, uh, carries out these different tasks in parallel, uh, different parts of your brain generate different electrical impulses. So think of there as, um, imagine that you have a you know, cocktail party in your head, right? So many overlapping voices, so this is now voices in your head, uh, now she's getting bad. But one, one, one part of your brain is saying, all right, heart, go and beat, heart, go and beat, heart, go and beat. And another part of your brain is saying, hey, breathe in and breathe out, breathe in and breathe out. And another part of your brain is, ooh, you know, what's wrong with this PowerPoint? Right? That's what my brain is saying, right? Um, and uh, what each electrode 
on the surface that your scalp does is it measures an overlapping combination of all of these voices because different parts of your brain are sending these electrical impulses, they add up, and so any one point on the surface of your brain reflects a sum or a mixture, or really a sum of these different voices, of these different things your brain is doing. Um, and so uh, if you, just, just zooming into the EEG plot, um, each line is a voltage measured at a single electrode, right, on say your scalp, and um, these uh, signals are quite correlated. You see that when there's a massive voice in your brain shouting, you know, like a, 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 a right, beat your heart or blink your eyes, that signal can go to all of the different electrodes, which is why you can see these artifacts reflected in all of these electrodes. Um, oh, sorry. All right. Turns out a pretty good way to clean up this data is to take all of these time series, pretty, pretty much exactly as we learned about it with the ICA algorithm, and separate it out into the independent components. And so um, it turns out in this example, there are two components corresponding to driving the heartbeat. Um, that's actually the eye blink component. And so one way to clean up this data, sorry, I really wonder what's wrong with this. All right, let me try something. Um, maybe if I... Um, if you, uh, uh, right, so there's a heartbeat, there's eye blink, and, ah, oh, I really don't get it. All right, and um, if you run ICA and then remove out, uh, have a person say, oh, there's a heartbeat, there's eye blink, and remove, subtract out those components, then you can end up with a um, much more cleaned up EEG signal which you can then use for downstream processing. So actually over the past several years, there's been a lot of research on you know, taking EEG reading to try to guess at a high level what you're thinking, right? It turns out that uh, uh, if you train a, train a, train a you know, supervised learning algorithm uh, to try to decide, are you thinking of a noun or a verb? Or are you thinking of uh, something edible? Or are you thinking of uh, something inedible? There's been very interesting research uh, trying to use EEG to figure out just at the very coarse level, um, not, 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 not quite mind reading every thought you're thinking, but, but, uh, uh, but uh, uh, can we categorize very coarse level thoughts? Like, are you thinking of a person? Or are you thinking of an object? And you can actually do that to some extent using EEG readings. But cleaning up the data to get rid of the eye blink, the heartbeat artifacts is a very useful um, pre-processing step to get cleaner data to feed into the learning algorithm to try to figure out, try to categorize, you know, some course category of what you're thinking, okay? Um, and then more research here, it turns out that, uh, well, kind of, I mentioned the Google Cat thing just now. It turns out that um, if you um, uh, train ICA, uh, oh, the font is messed up. Um, if you train ICA on uh, natural images, um, ICA will say that the, the independent components of natural images are these edges. Uh, and as in that, you know, when you see a little image patch in the world, when you see, you know, look, look, look somewhere in the world, look at just a tiny little piece of the image, right? Like 10 pixels by 10 pixels. Um, and if you take that data and model it as ICA, ICA will say that uh, the world is made up of edges or made up of patches like these and that uh, the way you end up with images in the world is by each of these patches, you know, independently saying, is there a vertical edge, is there a horizontal edge, or is there, is there this type of um, 
uh, lighter on the left, darker on the right. Is there this type of uh, lighter on top, darker at the bottom, and so on. And it's by adding all of these voices that you get a typical image patch in the world. So there are, there are interesting theories in neuroscience about whether this is how you know, the human brain learns to see as well. So, so very, very interesting work on um, uh, IC and sparse coding to try to use these mechanisms to explain how you know, the human brain tries to explain, um, uh, tr tries to learn to perceive images, for example. Um, so, all right, so that's it for um, uh, the algorithms of ICA. Um, just a final comments. Um, I think on Monday, someone asked, do the number of speakers and number of microphones need to be equal? So it turns out that um, if the number of uh, uh, microphones is larger than the number of speakers, that's actually fine, right? Uh, if, you, if the number of microphones is larger than the number of speakers, then if you run ICA or, or a slightly modified version of it, you find that some of the speakers are just silent speakers. Uh, uh, and so, you know, if you have uh, 10 microphones and five speakers, if you run this algorithm on 10 microphones, you can find that, well, maybe five of the sources are just silent, or there are ways to just not model those five sources as well, right? If, if you think that uh, they're just some sources of silence. so so. This, so, so slightly modified version of this works quite well if um, uh, the number of speakers is larger than the number of microphones. Um, if the, excuse me, if the number of microphones is larger than the number of speakers, this, this, this works quite well. If the number of microphones is smaller than the number of speakers, then that's still um, a very much a cutting edge research problem. Uh, so, so for example, uh, if you have two speakers and one microphone, um, uh, it turns out that if you have one male and one female speaker, so one relatively high pitch and one much lower pitch, then you can sometimes have some algorithms that separate out two voices with one microphone. Um, but it doesn't work that reliably, it's a little bit finicky, but there have been research papers published showing that you, know, you could make a reasonable attempt at separating out um, two voices with mi one microphone, and the pitches are quite different, such as this one male, one female voice. Um, uh, uh, but separating out two male voices or two female voices is still very hard, um, uh, and, and, and there's ongoing research in, in those settings. Right. So that's ICA, um, and I guess you get to play more of it in your um, homework problem as well. Okay. Any last questions about ICA? Oh, sorry, say that again? Wait, sorry, would it be fair to say? Yeah, so um, uh, I think actually if you go through a lot of the math, it, 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 it just breaks down, I think. Um, because there, you can have two independent sources, but W is now no longer a square matrix, right? It'll be a, what is it? Um, uh, uh, so, uh, I, I, right, so is that uh, X is equal to AS, right? And so if um, X is a real number, 
and s was two-dimensional. So I guess this would be um, uh, uh, a would be two by one, s would be, uh, oh, s a would be two by one, s would be two, excuse me, a would be one by two, and s would be a two by one, and this is one by one, then, you know, a inverse kind of doesn't exist, right? So you need to come up with a way to form the maximum likelihood model, and, and when you have one microphone, it's just how do you separate out two overlapping voices, right? So it takes much higher level knowledge, um, uh, yeah, to separate out two voices. Does this make sense? Um, this, go ahead. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, uh, let's see. So, right. So, if you don't know how many speakers there are, you have all these microphones, right? You have all the, the number of electrodes you have is fixed, so that's just your data set. And it turns out that uh, um, uh, if you run ICA with a large number of speakers, you find that many speakers are silent. There are also some versions of ICA that you. So, if you think that there are, um, uh, let's see. Boy, don't spend too much time on this. But it turns out that um, if you think that there is a relatively small number of speakers, then you don't need to explicitly model all the speakers. Instead, what you would model, so again, um, uh, to pose this a maximum likelihood estimation problem, um, let's say that uh, X is an R10, right? So you have 10 recordings, but you suspect that you only have five speakers. Then in this case, I guess the ma matrix A would be, um, what is it? Uh, what is it? It'd be 10 by 5, is it? Right? To mix the five sources into 10 speakers. And you could um, formulate a maximum likelihood estimation problem assuming the existence of only five speakers without modeling a lot of speakers and then finding later that they're all silent. That make sense? So if you so if, if, if you parameterize a model like this using A instead of W, um, uh, then you can form a maximum likelihood estimation problem where you just assume that there are five speakers and S is generated by five speakers mixing through a linear thing plus noise. Oh, I see, sure. Right, how do you know if you have, how do you know how many speakers you have? So I, I think it's one of those things a little bit like k-means, I guess, where you try it and see what works. And if you find that uh, the first few, you know, speakers will capture most of the variance, you find that the digital speakers are quite silent and they're quite small, you could just cut off at that time. I don't want to go too much into the different numbers of speakers and, and, and uh, microphones, uh, IC algorithms. Uh, uh, that, yeah, but uh, let me just take a couple last questions and move on. Any question? Yeah. Say it again? Is it? Oh, do you have a super brown on W? Um, I'm sure you can. It's not usually done in this version of the algorithm, but I would not be surprised if there are some other versions where you do. I've, I've not seen that a lot myself, actually. Yeah. Mike, cool. All right, cool. Um, let's see. All right, good. We're half an hour. Good. Um, so, 
Alright, so that wraps up um, our chapter on, on supervised learning. Right? So um, we learned about, I guess, k-means clustering, um, the EM algorithm for mixture of Gaussians, uh, or really mixture of Gaussians model, um, a factor analysis model, and also PCA, and then, you know, today, the ICA independent components analysis algorithm. And all of these were algorithms that could take us input in an unlabeled training set, just the XIs and no labels, and would find various interesting structures in the data, such as clusters or subspaces, or in the case of ICA, the voices of the independent speakers. Uh, and, and you implement ICA and play with it yourself um, in the homework problem, where you get to separate out many five overlapping um, voices. The last of the four major topics I want to cover in this class, we talk about supervised learning, kind of advice machine learning, unsupervised learning, and the fourth and the final major topics we'll cover in this class will be um, reinforcement learning. Right. So um, to motivate reinforcement learning, um, let's say you want to have a computer uh, learn to fly a helicopter. Right. I, I think I showed some of the videos in the, in the first lecture, so I'll just skip that here. But it turns out that um, if you are at every point in time given the position of a helicopter, called the state of a helicopter, and you're asked to take an action on how to move the control sticks, you know, to make the helicopter fly in a certain trajectory, it turns out that it's very difficult to know what's the one right answer for how to move the control sticks of a helicopter. Right. So if you don't have a mapping from X to Y, because you can't quite specify the one true way to fly a helicopter, um, it's hard to use supervised learning for that. Right? And what reinforcement learning does is, 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 is an algorithm that doesn't ask you to tell it the right answer at every step. It doesn't ask you to tell it exactly what's the one true way to move the controls of a helicopter at any moment in time. Instead, your responsibility as a designer, a machine learning engineer, or AI engineer is to specify a reward function that just tells the helicopter when it's flying well and when it's flying poorly. So your job as a designer is to write a cost function or reward function that gives the helicopter a high reward whenever it's doing well, flying accurately, flying trajectory you want to, and gives the helicopter a large negative reward um, whenever it crashes or does something bad. And I think I, I, I think you know, think of it as like training a dog, right? When do you say good dog? When do you say bad dog? And the dog figures out when to do more of the good dog things. And your job is not to tell the dog. You know, well, you can't actually talk to the dog and tell it what to do. I guess that doesn't work. But you can tell it good dog and bad dog, and hopefully it learns from those positive and negative rewards how to do more of the good things. Okay. Um, another example. Um, let's say you want to write a program to play chess, or, or I guess most, you know, somewhat famously and uh, uh, arguably somewhat slightly overhyped uh, Go, AlphaGo, right? Um, so it's very difficult to know, in a, given a certain chessboard position or checkers or Go, 
board position, what is the one true move? What's the one best move? So it's very difficult to formulate um, you know, playing chess uh, uh, as a supervised learning problem. And instead, um, the mechanisms used to play chess are much more like reinforcement learning, where you can um, let your program play chess or go or whatever, and whenever it wins, you go, oh, good computer. And when it loses, you go, oh, bad computer. Uh, so that's a reward function. And the learning algorithm's job is to figure out by itself how to get more of the positive rewards. Right? And actually, common rewards for uh, learning to play uh, chess or checkers or Othello go is um, plus uh, reward of plus one for win, minus one for lose, and zero for a tie. So writing a chess playing program, this would be a common choice of reward, um, where R is the reward function and S is the state. Okay? And I will go into the notation um, in a little bit. And so as you can imagine, um, giving only this type of information to say a chess playing program, it places much more burden on the program to figure out what to do. Right? In fact, one of the challenges of reinforcement learning is uh, so, uh, so this is called a reward, and that's called the state. And the state means um, the status of the chessboard, where are the pieces in the chessboard, or the status of the helicopter, where exactly is the helicopter, and are you the right side up or are you upside down, and where are you, right? Um, and it turns out one of the challenges one of the things that makes um, Reinforcement learning hard is uh, the credit assignment problem. And that means that if uh, your program is playing a game of chess, and let's say it loses on move 50, you know, so it plays a game, and then on move 50, right, it's checkmated, it loses its opponent. So it gets a reward of negative one. Um, but how can the program actually figure out what it did well and what it did poorly? Right. If you lose a game and move 50, it might be that the program made a really bad move, made a blunder, and move 20, and then, you know, but it just took another 30 moves before its fate was sealed, right? So in a game of chess, you make a bad mistake early on, it can still take many, many games, many, many moves in the game of chess before, before the final outcome of, of losing, or winning or losing is reached. Um, or um, in a, uh, and, and actually another, uh, it turns out that um, if you are trying to build a self-driving car, um, if ever a car crashes, right, chances are the thing the car was doing right before it crashes was break, but it's not breaking that causes the crash, it's probably something else the car did many, many seconds ago that led to the bad outcome. So if there's a bad outcome, how does the algorithm know, of all the things it did before, how does it know what it did well? which you should do more of, and what it should do poorly, which you should do less of. And conversely, if there's a good outcome, you know, like it wins a game of chess, well, how do you know what you did well, right? So that's called the credit assignment problem, which is when your algorithm gets some reward, how, how do you actually figure out what you did well and what you did poorly so you know what to do more of and what to do less of, right? So um, as we develop reinforcement learning algorithms, we'll see that the algorithms we use have to at least indirectly um, try to solve the credit assignment problem, okay? So, um, reinforcement learning problems like playing chess or flying helicopters or, um, uh, you know, building these various robots is modeled using the um, MDP or the Markov Decision Process Formalism. 
Um, and this is a way, this is a notation in the formalism for modeling how the world works, and then reinforcement learning algorithms will solve problems using this formalism. So uh, what is an MDP? So an MDP is a five-tuple. And let me explain what each of these are. Um, so S is a set of states. So for example, uh, in chess, this would be the set of all possible chess positions. Or in uh, flying a helicopter, this would be the set of all the possible positions and orientations and velocities of your helicopter. Okay. A is a set of actions um, where uh, in the helicopter, this would be all the positions you could move your control sticks. Or in chess, this would be all the moves you could make you know, in, a, in a game of chess. subscript SA is, uh, is a state transition probabilities. And so um, we'll see later, this, these state transition probabilities tell you if you take a certain uh, action A in a certain state S, what's the chance of you ending up at a particular different state S prime? Right. Um, A gamma is a discount factor. Uh, it's a number between 0 and 1. Uh, don't worry about this for now. We'll come back to this in a minute. And R is that all-important reward function. Okay. So um, in order to develop a reinforcement learning algorithm, um, I'm going to use as a running example a simplified MDP that we can draw on a whiteboard, right? So helicopters and chess and go and so on are really complicated MDPs. So just to illustrate the algorithms, I'm going to use a simpler MDP. Uh, and this is um, an example drawn from the textbook Russell and Norvig. Um, but I'm going to use a simplified MDP in which you have a robot navigating this simple maze, uh, and there's an obstacle. So this is a grid world, right? So your robot, you know, I don't know, well, it's an R2D2-like robot, I guess, right? Um, and it's navigating this very simple maze, uh, and this is a pillar, or this is a wall, so you can't walk into that wall. <coughs> and let me just use um, indexing on the states as follows. Um, so this MDP, let's, let's go through the five tuple and talk about what uh, the, the, each of the five things are. So this MDP has 11 states corresponding to the 11 possible positions that the robot could be in, right? each of these blank squares, so the 11 possible states. And uh, the actions um, are north, south, east, and west, right? You can command your robot to move in any of these directions. 
Um, and I don't know, if, if you worked on robots before, you know that um, when you command a robot to you know, head straight, um, it doesn't always go exactly straight. Sometimes the wheel slip, it veers off at a slight angle. And so in this simplified example, we're going to model it as that um, if you command the robot to go north from a certain state, that there's a 0.8% chance it'll successfully go where you told it to, and a 0.1 chance that it'll accidentally veer off to the left or accidentally veer off to the right. Okay? Um, if you're working on real robots, right, working on a lot of robots, uh, it is actually important to model the noisy dynamics of a robot wheel slipping slightly, orientation being slightly off. Now, um, in a real robot, you'd have a much bigger state space than 11 states, right? So, so this is simplified. So this is not a realistic model for how robots actually slip, but because we're using such a small state space, I think just for illustration purposes, we'll, we'll, we'll use this. Um, and so, for example, The state transition probably to specify these. You say that if you're in the state three one, so the state three comma one, and you command it to go north, that the chance of getting to the state three two is uh, 0.8, and the chance of getting to the state four one is 0.1. Chance again to two one is zero point one, um, and the chance of getting to other states is like three three, and other states is equal to zero. Okay, so the state transition probabilities would capture that if you're here instead to go north, there's a zero point eight chance of getting here, zero point one chance of getting here, zero point one chance of getting here, and you know like a zero point zero chance of right hopping two steps. Okay. Um, Right. Oh, and, and again, in this simplified MDP example, we'll just assume that if the robot, you know, hits a wall, it just bounces off the wall and stays where it is. So if you tell this to go ease, it slips south, or just bounces off the wall and stays exactly where it is. Now, let's specify the reward function. Uh, we'll come back to the discount factor later. But let's say you want the robot to navigate to this cell in the upper right-hand corner. Um, and so to incentivize the reward, incentivize the robot to get to this square, you know, that's the prize or that's the goal in the maze, let's put a plus one reward there. And um, let's say you really don't want the robot to go to this cell, then you could put a negative one reward there. Right? So um, the way you specify the task for a robot to do is in designing the reward function. So in our example, um, well, let me just copy that again. Plus one, minus one. Right. Um, we have that the reward at the cell four three is plus one, and the reward at the cell four two is minus one. Um, and then you know if you want the robot to get to the plus one reward cell as quickly as possible, 
then um, again, there, there, there are many ways of designing reward functions, but one common choice would be to um, put a negative penalty, a very small negative penalty. Right, such as a set the reward to negative 0.02 for all other states. And the effect of a small negative reward like this is to charge it, right? Every, every step it is just loitering around. So charge it a little bit for using up electricity and wandering around uh, because this incentivizes the robot to hurry up and get to the plus one reward, right? So if you give a small penalty, you know, for, for loitering and wasting electricity, say. So this is how an MDP works. Um, your robot wakes up at some state S0, um, at time zero. You, know, so you turn on the robot, and the robot says, oh, I'm at this state. And based on what state it is in, um, it will get to choose some action A0. So decide, do I want to go north, south, east, or west? So choose some action. Based on the action, the consequence of the choice is it will get to some state S1, uh, the state at the next time step, which is distributed according to the state transition probabilities governed by the previous state and the action it chose. Right? So depending on what action it chose, it has different chances of moving north, south, east, or west. Now that it's in S1, it then has to choose a new action, A1, and as a consequence of the action A1, it will get to some new state S2, which is governed by um, the state transition probabilities, you know, S1, A1, and so on, okay? And, and the robot just keeps on running. And so the robots will go through a sequence of states, S0, S1, S2, and so on, depending on the choices it receives, uh, depending on the actions it chooses. And the total payoff is um, written as follows with one more detail. Um, is that term gamma. Um, so think of gamma as a number like 0.99. So gamma is usually chosen to be just slightly less than one. And what the, um, so the total payoff is the sum of rewards, or more technically is the sum of discounted rewards. And what this does is it adds up all the rewards that the robot receives over time. But the further reward is into the future, um, you know, the, the, the smaller the gamma to the power of time that that reward is multiplied by, okay? So any reward you get at time one, you get all of that. A reward you get at time two is multiplied by 0.99. Reward you get the next step is multiplied by 0.99 squared, 0.99 cubed, and so on. And so what the um, discount factor uh, does is it has the effect of giving a smaller weight to rewards in the distant future. Um, and this means that this encourages the robot to also get the positive rewards faster um, or postpone the negative rewards, right? And so in uh, financial applications, 
um, the discount factor has one has, has a natural interpretation as the time value of money because if you have a dollar today, you know you're better off having a dollar today than having a, year, a dollar a year from now, right? Because you can put the dollar in the bank and earn interest uh, uh, for a year on your dollar, and so a dollar today is strictly better than a dollar in the future. Um, and conversely, having to pay a hundred dollars or having to pay one dollar a year from now is also better than having to pay a dollar today, right? Because if you could you know, save your money and earn interest and then issue a payment to someone else a year from now rather than now, then you're actually slightly wealthier. Um, and, so, uh, uh, and so gamma in financial applications has an interpretation as the time value of money um, uh, or, or as the interest rate, I guess. Um, uh, and, but, but, but more generally, even for non-financial applications, uh, mo most of, mo most, there, there are some financial applications of reinforcement learning, but lots of non-financial applications as well. Um, this mechanism of using a discount factor has the effect of encouraging the system to get to the positive rewards as quickly as possible, uh, but then also conversely to try to push the negative rewards as far into the future as possible. Um, oh, and I think uh, to be pragmatic, there, there are two reasons why people use gamma. The story I just told, time value of money, you know, front load deposit rewards, postponed negative rewards, that's, uh, that's the story you tend to, people, you tend to uh, uh, hear people say in terms of why we have a discount factor. Uh, the other reason we have a discount factor is actually a much more pragmatic one, which is that a lot of the reinforcement learning algorithms you see, they converge much faster or they work much better if you're willing to have a discount factor. So it turns out that uh, if gamma is, is equal to one, if, if gamma is not strictly less than one, um, uh, it's much harder, or, or there, there are many reinforcement learning algorithms that uh, may not converge, or it's much harder to prove the convergence or, or may not converge. So just as a pragmatic thing, um, this makes the job much easier for your algorithms. Now I see some of you shaking your heads in, dis in disapproval. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so one of the things with there's no gamma is that uh, the rewards, some of the rewards, you know, could be, can increase or decrease with our bounds. So by having gamma, this guarantees that the total payoff is a finite value, or it's a bounded value. So that, that, that's one of the p parts that go into some of the proofs or some of the reasoning behind why reinforcement learning algorithms converge. Yeah. So, cool, thank you. It's good insight. Um, okay. So the goal of reinforcement learning is to choose actions over time to maximize the expected total payoff. And in particular, um, what most reinforcement learning algorithms will come up with is a policy um, that maps from states to actions, right? So the output of most reinforcement learning algorithms will be a policy um, or, or a controller in the RR world, we tend to use the term policy, but policy just means controller that maps from states to actions. So it turns out that um, 
for the MDP that we have, um, right, it turns out that this is the optimal policy. Um, so for example, uh, if you take this example, this, this cell here, right, this cell over here, this policy is saying pi applied to the state 3, 1 is equal to west. Right, and that, so, <coughs> excuse me. So I separately worked out what is the optimal policy, and this turns out to be optimal policy in the sense that if you, um, we say execute this policy, so to execute the policy means that whenever you're in the state S, take the action given by pi of S, Um, so that's what it means to execute a certain policy. And it turns out that um, this policy, well, I, I worked out separately, right, offline, you know, in, in, um, uh, on my laptop, uh, uh, that this is the optimal policy for this MDP. And it turns out that if you execute this policy, meaning whenever you're in a certain state, you know, take the action indicated by the arrow, that this is the policy that will maximize the expected total payoff, okay? Um, and the problem in reinforcement learning is, given a definition for an MDP or given a problem, to pose the problem as an MDP, figure out what's the set of states, what's the set of actions, um, what are the state transition priorities, specify a discount factor, and specify a reward function. And then to have a reinforcement learning algorithm, find the policy pi that maximizes the expected payoff. And then when you want your robot to act or when you want your chess playing program to act, um, whenever you're in some state S, take the action given by pi of S. And hopefully this will result in a robot that you know, efficiently navigates to the plus one state. Okay. Um, so it turns out that MDPs are quite good at making fine distinctions. So one example, um, it's actually not totally obvious whether here you're better off going north or going west, right? And it turns out that there is a trade-off. If you go west here, then you know, you're going to take a longer route to get to the plus one, so you take longer. Uh, the plus one is discounted more heavily. You're taking these penalties along the way. <coughs> oh, excuse me. But on the flip side, if you were to try to go north, you could try to get there faster, but on this step, there's a 0.1% chance that you accidentally slip off to the minus one state. So, so what is the optimal action, right? It's actually quite hard to just look at it with your eyes and make a decision. But it turns out that if you solve for the optimal set of actions in this MDP, in this example, it's actually take a longer and safer route. Next question. Does this avoid cycles and policies? So, uh, uh, if the optimal set of actions is to cycle around, then it should find that. Uh, uh, I mean, for example, if there are only penalties everywhere and you just go and run in a circle, you know, then, then the, the, the algorithm will actually choose to do that. Uh, but in this case, you want to get to the plus one as quickly as possible. Okay. 
And so what we'll see, um, all right, this one question. Go ahead. Uh, wait, so, all right, so, sorry, so, so chessing, uh, uh, checkers and go and so on there, one, one complication is you take a move. So actually, all right, so to refine the description of chess, um, what happens in playing chess is the state, state is um, your board, right? So it's your move. So you see a board, that's a state. And so you make a move and then the opponent makes a move and then that's the new state. So the state is when you and your opponent both make, take turns, then it's come back to you, right? Um, and because you don't know exactly what your opponent will do, there is a party distribution over if I make a move, well, what's the other person gonna do? Uh, miss one last question? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right, oh, the priorities I assigned per node, the 0 0.8, 0 0.1, 0 0.1, where does that come from? Um, so we'll talk about that later. Uh, in some applications, does this learn? So, if you build a robot, you might not know, is it 0 0.8, 0 0.1, 0 0.1, or you know, 0 0.7, 0 0.15, 0 0.15. So it's quite common to use data to learn those state transition probabilities as well. We'll, we'll, we'll see a specific example of that later, okay? So, all right, so where we are, just to summarize, this is how you formulate a problem as an MDP, um, and then the, 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 the job of enforcement learning algorithm is really to go from the MDP to telling you what is a, good policy, okay? So let's break um, and then, oh, have a good Thanksgiving, everyone. We'll see you for like a week and a half. Uh, uh, enjoy yourselves and we'll, we'll reconvene after Thanksgiving with, uh, with this.